Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Don Howard, President and Chief Executive Officer of the James Irvine Foundation. Tonight's program is entitled Californians at Work, Advancing Dignity, Respect, and Opportunity, and is supported by the James Irvine Foundation. For those of you who don't know us, we're an 82-year-old independent grant-making institution, no connections to the Irvine family or the Irvine company. We have an endowment of about $2.5 billion on a good day and get to make grants this year of $105 million. Our focus is entirely on California. Our goal at the Irvine Foundation is to ensure that every low-wage worker in California has the power to advance economically. Why? Because the California dream is now out of reach for the vast majority of low-wage workers in our state. And if California is to succeed in the years ahead, we must expand opportunities for Californians to succeed economically. The industries represented by our speakers this evening, from restaurants to technology to hospitality, touch our lives each day and are central to the state's economy. Yet the hundreds of thousands of workers fueling these industries face daily challenges in making ends meet. And these same low-wage workers often have little power to influence the economic policies that affect their lives and their families. A 2018 survey by the Public Religion Research Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institute commissioned by Irvine, found that nearly half of all Californian workers struggle with poverty. Nearly one in every two workers that you'll face on the street are struggling with poverty. Of struggling workers statewide, four in 10 have cut back on food, medications, or visiting the doctor. Six in 10 are worried about paying for housing. And one in 10 struggling workers report that their wages have been withheld by their employer without cause. So at Irvine, we're investing in three different areas right now to try to address these challenges. The first area is ensuring that fair wages, rights, and protections are insured for low-wage workers. Research shows that $2 billion in wages are lost or stolen each year in California. Just repeat that, $2 billion lost or stolen in wages from low-wage workers. The research shows that about 600,000 mostly minimum-wage workers are not being paid what they're due each year, and each of those workers loses an average of $3,400 per year. These are largely minimum wage or less workers, and they're losing $3,400 per year. To address this and other challenges that low-wage workers face, we're investing $80 million through our Fair Work Initiative to strengthen worker organizations, including worker centers representing restaurant workers, domestic workers, warehouse workers, and others. We're supporting them in their strategic wage enforcement partnership with the state's labor commissioner, and we're supporting them to pioneer and expand new forms of labor organizing to ensure that workers have a seat at the table on economic issues that affect their lives. The second grant-making area we're supporting is called Better Careers, and it's training workers for higher-paying jobs. In California, there are 2.5 million workers who don't have any college education but are ready and able for work. They just need to learn new skills. We recently committed $120 million to scale up the most effective skills-building programs throughout our Better Careers initiative, and from that we expect about 25,000 more workers and more low-wage workers will move into family-sustaining careers. 
We're also supporting California's community colleges. Importantly, California's most uh, effective and largest platform for workforce development, helping them strengthen and scale quality pathways to new jobs within the system and helping them launch a new online community college for incumbent workers who uh, seek to scale up for better work. And lastly, the third grant-making area I'll mention is addressing the cost of living by investing in affordable housing efforts, protecting those here today, and creating more units for those who need them. So today, we'll hear from three extraordinary leaders who manage organizations that directly engage and lift up worker voices across the state. They are dedicated to ensuring that workers are afforded dignity, respect, and the power to create better lives for themselves and their families. It's now my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Saru Jayaraman is president and co-founder of Restaurant Opportunities Centers United and director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California at Berkeley. After 9-11, together with displaced World Trade Center workers, she co-founded Restaurant Opportunities Centers United, which now has more than 18,000 worker members, 200 employer partners, and several thousand consumer members in a dozen states nationwide. Derricka Marins is Executive Director of Working Partnerships USA. Under Derricka's leadership, Working Partnerships has strengthened worker rights and wages through minimum wage and job protections in cities throughout Silicon Valley. Shasan Liu is Executive Director of the Chinese Progressive Association. In the past 11 years, as the Organizing Director, she has helped develop the association's grassroots organizing and leadership development program and its advocacy for low-income Chinese immigrants. Finally, our moderator today is Farida Jabla Romero. Farida reports on immigration uh, for KQED News and won a 2018 Outstanding Emerging Journalist Award from the Society of Professional Journalists in Northern California. Please welcome all of our panelists as I turn the program over to Farida. Well, welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for being here. Um, so for our first question, uh, I'm wondering if each of you could give us a sense of your current perspective on the struggles faced by workers today. Sarah, would you like to start? <laughs> sure. I run a national organization. <laughs> and um, so I would love, if you don't mind, if you'll indulge me to give you a sense of our industry nationally very quickly and then how, you know, how that impacts and what's happening in California. So uh, our work, we focus on the restaurant industry, which right now with over 13 million workers nationally is the nation's second largest and number one absolute fastest growing private sector employer in the United States. Uh, we've been until very recently one in 11 American workers. We're actually getting very close to announcing that we are now one tenth of the entire American workforce. One in 10 American workers works in restaurants currently, and one in two Americans has worked in the industry at some point in their lifetime. I always like to ask how many of you ever worked in a restaurant um, <laughs> uh, around the room? <laughs> um, and that is true where if I, no matter where I speak, all over the country, unfortunately, despite the industry's size and growth, it continues to be the absolute 
lowest paying, bottom of the barrel, lowest paying employer in the United States. So every year, the U.S. Department of Labor, as long as we've had a functioning U.S. Department of Labor, has put out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs. Every year, the seven lowest of the 10 are all in one industry, the restaurant industry. And that's due to the money, power and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association, which we call the other NRA, which has, um, you know, represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's. And it has been around, it turns out, since emancipation of slavery when it first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything at all and have them live entirely on this newfangled idea that had just come from Europe called a tip. That is how tipped workers in this country started with a $0 wage at emancipation have gone all the way to a $2.13 federal minimum wage for the largest employer in the United States of America. And we represent 13 million workers across America who are suffering from those absurdly, absurdly low wages, 70% of whom are women working in IHOPs and Denny's, struggling to feed their families and tips, and struggling with the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States because they are having to tolerate all kinds of inappropriate behavior to feed their families and tips. So in the rest of the country, we've been fighting to eliminate this subminimum wage for tipped workers um, and actually mobilizing workers to vote, tipped workers to vote, uh, many of whom actually didn't vote in 2016, sat out the election because they saw Democrats selling them out, leaving them behind at $2 an hour. Mm -hmm. We are mobilizing them to vote on this issue and finding tremendous success in doing so. So I'm going to bring us now to California, where, of course, that wage doesn't exist. We in California are one of seven states that got rid of that subminimum wage many decades ago. But the election of a man uh, who became our president because we left 13 million workers behind and out affects us here in California as much as it does the rest of the country. And in fact, the impacts of the industry being the lowest wage industry and getting away with a $2 wage in the rest of the country has tremendous impacts on us here in California, where we have a full 2 million of the 13 million are here in the state of California. And despite the fact that we have higher wages than the rest of the country, that 2 million, that body of 2 million still has the lowest wages of any workforce here in the state of California. So we're higher than the rest of the country, but lower than everybody else in this economy, in the, in the state of California. And besides the impossibility of living even on a $15 wage uh, it, and working in a restaurant, which is why the restaurant industry is going through the worst labor shortage here in San Francisco in the history of the industry, because nobody can afford to live anywhere near where the restaurants are. Uh, besides that, California also has to deal with massive inequality on the basis of race and gender so that uh, while there are some living wage jobs in the industry and fine dining service here in San Francisco, for example, right across the street or next door, fine dining service, bartending positions, which can bring people six-figure salaries, are held almost exclusively by white workers, people of color, immigrants, formerly incarcerated individuals, all of whom are hired by this industry more than any other industry, are segregated into lower-paying jobs. And so that, you know, combining the, the higher wages with the mobility really has to be our focus here in California. <laughs> Oh, that's right. I, I, have, I have a mic. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. I couldn't see it. Um, well, Sarah's always a hard act to follow, but um, but uh, I appreciate the question. So I'm going to, to 
take a, I'm going to tell a story of a worker in, that is part of our largest campaign called Silicon Valley Rising, and then back into sort of how her story is illustrative of what we view as some of the problems uh, that are facing workers in our economy today. So Alejandra is a Latina immigrant uh, worker here, grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in San Mateo County. Uh, she uh, was became at a very early, she graduated high school, had had a child shortly after high school. So instead of going to college, the route that she chose um, was to get a job, live with her parents um, at the time, and feed for her daughter, um, feed her daughter and, and care for her daughter. She feels very lucky because every day she she got a job at um, on the campus of one of the the biggest tech companies in the region um, and in the on the globe, um, and so she feels very privileged to be at her job. The reality of her job is that she doesn't work for that tech company; she works for a contractor. That contractor. Um, paid uh, Alejandra before she and her colleagues started to organize for better conditions, just above minimum wage, despite billions of dollars of profits being earned within the company every year. Because she made just barely above minimum wage, she couldn't afford to live, her and her daughter live in the, a room in her parents' house now. She's now 25. Um, she w- had to move to Modesto, um, shortly after that, because so now she commutes. She and her family started to commute four hours, two hours each way, which takes her away from her family, takes her away from her daughter. Um, Alejandra, to some of the points that, that Saru made, Alejandra doesn't vote. She, when we ask her why she's, she's uh, not registered, she is eligible to, to, to vote. Um, she says, well, it wouldn't make a difference anyway, and by the way, I don't have time. Um, and you know, for Alejandra, especially as she started to organize for working conditions with her colleagues, she started to realize that both her inability to get this major tech company to pay attention to them because they don't technically work for them is not just in her industry. Like our economy these days is fissured, right? Many, many low-wage workers and middle-income workers don't work for corporations or employers at the top of the supply chain. And because of that fissuring, because of the separation and the segregation in the economy where workers then are working for contractors whose margins are 1%, 2%, you know, in in the restaurant industry, it's, you know, worse than that often. They're not able to access capital, right? And capital doesn't have to pay attention to them. And by that, I mean employers. And because our economy isn't working in the way that it should, and workers then are faced with not only economic segregation, but then they're commuting two hours, they're getting geographically segregated from opportunity centers, they find themselves, and that is also because of the housing crisis, right? Mm-hmm. They find themselves unable to get above water. And so the strategies that we have seen that, um, well, first of all, our analysis is that, frankly, this economic model is broken, not just for low-wage workers, but for all workers. Some of our biggest allies in our campaign to organize the subcontracted workers in these industries have been tech workers themselves, who are finding themselves, despite being software engineers, 
etc., unable to survive here. And so I think one of the, the, the key messages that I would say is that the, the economic model is broken. Occupational segregation is, is really real, not just in, in the fact that workers are segregated out from the good jobs, but they're segregated out, segregated out by race. It is no accident that Alejandra didn't have a, an apprenticeship opportunity as a Latina worker on the peninsula to get into a software engineer job, right? She ended up in food service where women and largely women of color work. Um, and so our strategies have been to both organize workers to build economic power in the economy through exerting not just with their contractor, but with where the profits lie, exert economic and bargaining power with where the profits lie, but then also to engage them in other workers aren't just workers. Workers are renters. They are parents. They are folks who need health care. And so to engage them in the campaigns that treat them and, and work with them in, in that intersectional way on campaigns to improve their lives. Awesome. <laughs> well, um, let's give it a yeah. <laughs> Um I am really honored to be here today. Thank you to the Irvine Foundation Commonwealth Club for this opportunity, um, to our moderator for, um, you know, guiding us through a discussion that's so important and so needed. Um, it really is, uh, also it's like now it's too hard acts to follow. So here we go. Um, so I'm Shasan with the Chinese Progressive Association and, um, I think, you know, I, I'm really glad to see so many people come out to talk about who are interested in thinking mm. and talking and learning about workers in California. How many people here are actually workers in California? Can I just see a show of hands? People at work in California? Great. <laughs> and um, uh, how many folks here um, actually identify as coming from immigrant families, either as an immigrant yourself or from an immigrant background? Okay, awesome. So, um, you know, my work is with primarily Chinese immigrant um, workers and uh, and young people and seniors um, and, you know, generally in the community. Um, and what we see is the single biggest problem facing workers today is that we live in a profoundly undemocratic economy. So just um, following up with what Derica was saying, the whole system is not working for most people. And you can see that from the fact mm -hmm. that in San Francisco, you know, um, you qualify for low income housing if you make $120,000 a year. Right. Like that's the reality that we're facing right now. And so if you are a low wage worker who is making less than minimum wage is making less than thirty thousand dollars a year. You know, what does it mean for you to survive in this city and in this region where the cost of living is so out of reach? And as the Bay Area, uh, so, you know, liberal haven, uh, tech booming region, right, as part of a, the fifth largest economy in the world uh, as California. Right. What is going on that half of the workers in California are not making enough to make ends meet? What is going on in our system that so many people are unable to provide for their families and be part of their communities in a substantial way because they are commuting and working and commuting and working, right? So um, I want to also share a story of a worker um, that I had the honor to work with because I think when we face some of these really big, intractable, like the economy's messed up, the climate's messed up, you know, like our so many systems are wrong, like what do we do? Um, you know, uh, it's it, for me what I get grounded in is that my organization is rooted in a legacy of social movement struggle and social justice struggle in the civil rights movement and that every day I get to work with everyday people, everyday working Californians who are actually, you know, finding the courage to make their voice known in a system that is not set up to hear them. The economy is not set up 
to hear from everybody and to give everyone an equal shot, an equal opportunity. But there are folks who are fighting that. And, you know, we're some of the, we're some of the organizations across the state that are taking on that fight and supporting people on the ground. So I'm going to share the, the story of a Hong who, uh, you know, is a middle-aged Chinese uh, immigrant uh, who came to this country about 13 years ago um, with the dream of being able to provide a better future for her, her children and to get them a good education. Anyone's family can resonate with that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. desire, right? Or anyone themselves want, you want a good education for your kids, right? That's what she came for. Um, what she found uh, was a job at a high-end dim sum restaurant right here in San Francisco, just a block away from here, um, that she said, wow, this is like a really nice restaurant. Yeah. Um, and they charge a lot of money for dim sum. So, um, but quickly she found that she was working uh, 10, 11, 12 hour days, uh, folding dim sum to exacting, very exacting detailed uh, standards, um, you know, not being paid a minimum wage, mm. not being paid overtime, not being offered uh, workers' compensation when she was injured on the job, never, ever even dreaming of taking a day off sick when she was sick or her child was sick. Has anyone ever here had to work when your child is sick mm-hmm. or when you yourself is sick? Like, no one in that restaurant ever experienced taking a day paid off sick, even though that right was won here in San Francisco approximately 13 years ago. OK. Um, and, you know, when we first uh, approached uh, a Hong about, you know, maybe do you want to do something about the situation? You know, uh, you know, there's actually laws that are being violated here and there's agencies that can help you. You know, actually, some of your coworkers are talking about maybe we should do something. You know, what do you No, Thank you. That was the resounding response. <laughs> no, thank you. It's nice what you're doing. Good luck. Wish you well. Leave me out of it. Right. And that was her response for quite some time. Um, you know, but with persistence and with the work that we do as organizers, right, which is, you know, you, you, you don't take no for an answer and you talk to people around her and you work and you work and you work to build the trust, to build the knowledge, to build um, the sense of like hope that can overcome all the fear of like, I can't lose this job. I cannot risk losing my housing. I cannot put my children's future at risk. Right. And eventually she joined a campaign that eventually a hundred workers like her got involved to change their restaurant to work in partnership with community organizations like Chinese Progressive Association and Asian Law Caucus and were able to get the support of city agencies that were doing their job. The city's Office of Labor Standards Enforcement and the state's Labor Commissioner's Office. And the ultimate result, really driven by the leadership of mostly folks who did not speak English, and who were not, um, you know, civically engaged in any way, right? Um, they were able to win a $4 million settlement in back wages. They were able to win, more importantly, while that was also the, the largest single settlement the Labor Commissioner's Office had ever won at that time, more importantly, they won a whole set of workplace change agreements where the employer committed to raising wages, to providing paid holidays, to having a grievance procedure the next time um, you know, they were uh, uh, disrespected by their managers, um, and to really have, uh, to have health be- care benefits, things that were very rare in the restaurant industry, um, but were totally within reach of an employer that was doing as well as this restaurant was. And what it took was a combination of workers coming together with community support and government doing their job. So that's an example of some of the work that So you've all talked about some of the real 
daily impacts for the workers that you're helping to organize and empower and for whom you're trying to change things. But I mean, what are some of the negative impacts for people who don't consider themselves low wage, you know, workers, like the things that are going to make a dent in, um, you know, trying to make society a little bit more fair and with more um, economic opportunity for for all. For us as consumers uh-huh. or, um, you know, as residents of the Bay Area, I mean, you've, you've touched on some of those things like how undemocratic mm-hmm. the economy is or how little time people have to be civically engaged. But what would you say to people who just, you know, don't know about those realities for, 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 um, for workers? Uh, well, I would start by saying, you know, um, when we at Chinese Progressive Association, Association first started getting involved in raising the minimum wage, San Francisco was the second city in the nation to set its own mm-hmm. minimum wage. It, given the you know, decline of unions, the changing economy, uh, the fact that the federal government was doing nothing to protect workers, right? It really became clear that it had to happen at the state and local level for standards to be set, for the floor to be held so that workers could have uh, something to fall back on. And we, we faced a lot of concerns, right? If you raise the wages, then prices are going to go up. If you raise the wages, then, you know, people will not be able to afford uh, the cost of going to a restaurant because people are getting paid more. And what we explained is that actually depressing wages of workers is what depresses the economy for everybody. The fact that workers are being paid so little that they have to rely on public benefits to survive, and the fact that so many employers who want to do the right thing but are competing with you know, the dominant practice, which is to steal money from your workers, right? That actually is creating, a, you know, a depressed economy in many of our communities in a way that um, is not benefiting anybody. And as Don mentioned in the beginning, the statistic, $2 billion being lost from our economy because of wage theft and unpaid wages. That's money that should, if it, if it was not taken out of the economy, that money would be going straight into small businesses. It would go straight into allowing folks to pay rent and not be evicted and have to get in line for a shelter. I mean, it would cover so many things that we are now having to do the dirty, messy, expensive cleanup work of an economy that excludes and pushes out so many people from being able to have just the basic, basic things they need to live. So that is really, you know, that's the real cost. The cost is to ignoring the issue. The cost is to uh, keeping standards low, um, not so much to raising standards. The raising standards is what lifts everybody up. That's right. I mean, maybe uh, somewhat provocatively or not, I want to I pivot your question into, well, I think it is very interesting that um, in a time when folks would say our economy is booming, mm-hmm. billions and billions of dollars is being made and pocketed into the hands of fewer and fewer people, mm-hmm. but is being made, that that sort of... These issues, these widely felt issues are so opaque. And what I would posit is that that is in service of the status quo. And that you can't disconnect the fact that a worker 
earns low wages or is, you know, stolen from by their employer from the fact that they don't feel like our democracy is working from them for them from the fact that they can't afford to live here. Like they are actually the same thing. Um, and in order to change a system as big as that, I would posit you have to take a step out of the issue and say, how do we build structural power and for whom? And then what are our strategies to do that? And it is no accident that there's a decline in unions. That is a multi-decade attack on the legal framework through which workers exert bargaining power. Um, and so we have to really sort of not only expose for folks the reality of that system, but then also offer experiments and solutions because we haven't built the future yet on that, on how we get there. Your turn. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like, I like to think about, uh, the experience on diners as the three D's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it impacts the, the way that restaurant workers in our case are treated in America impacts our dining experience, our dollars and our democracy. And this is how mm -hmm. with our dining experience, uh, you know, we right now, unfortunately, despite the fact that we have higher wages in the restaurant industry than the rest of the country, the Bay Area actually has the highest race wage gap, the highest gap between white workers and workers of color in the restaurant industry of any region in the United States. It's actually double the race wage gap of Houston, Texas. It's almost $6 an hour, the gap between white workers and workers of color. And it's because, again, when you walk into any fine dining restaurant in San Francisco, you'll find white servers, people of colors, busters and runners. And in the back of the house, literally the skin color gets darker the farther back you go. And that's Segregation results in not only those workers of color never being able to advance to livable wage jobs that allow them to buy homes and feed their families, mm -hmm. but also creates tremendous instability and employee turnover. We have the highest rates of turnover of any industry in the United States. It's a 300% turnover rate. That means three turns in one position in one year. And our research, years of research with thousands of employers, shows that you can cut that employee turnover in half by providing higher wages and opportunities for advancement. It's only common sense. If you are allowed to move up, you're going to stay. If you're not allowed to move up, you're going to move on and try to find another opportunity. And so how does that impact our dining experience if... As in, you know, if you remember Cheers, you know, <laughs> any place you go and you see a worker who's been there for a while, your dining experience is going to be better. They would have honed their craft. They would have developed a relationship with you. They know the menu. They know this. They know you. Right. And so your dining experience is going to be better if workers of color are allowed to move up and stay. So our dining experience in California is impacted by low wages and high turnover, which is the result of lack of mobility. Dining experience. Two, our dollars. Taxpayers pay 16.5 billion with a B dollars annually for one industry's workers alone, the restaurant industry. 16.5 billion dollars annually. The average small restaurant costs us a quarter million dollars annually in taxpayer funded public benefits like Medicaid, like uh, emergency room care, like 
welfare, like public assistance, which means that because of this antiquated system of tipping, you are subsidizing the multi-billion dollar restaurant industry in two ways. You are both paying their workers wages through your tips and you are subsidizing their survival through public assistance. And so you are essentially subsidizing a massive multi-billion dollar industry every time you eat out and every time you pay your taxes. So how does it impact us that the restaurant industry gets to pay as little as they do, doesn't provide mobility? We pay for it every time we pay our taxes. Mm -hmm. And the third is our democracy. Because what happens when 13 million workers in America and 2 million workers in California don't have enough to make ends meet? and feel left out by both parties, by all elected officials, they do not vote. They neither have the time, the wherewithal, nor the willingness Mm -hmm. to vote because they do not see anybody who cares for them. They see everybody leaving them behind. And so what happens? You ended up with a man named President Donald Trump because we did not pay attention to these workers, their conditions, their needs. Uh, And I I know this is California, but I just have to tell you a 30-second story about Michigan because it it tells you what is happening to these workers nationally and here in California. In 2016, I called Amanda Renteria, who's the political director for Hillary Clinton. I said, I'm sitting on 13 million workers who do not vote. I know the issue that will get them out to the polls. It's the fact that they don't make 213. Come out, work with us, reach these people. They did not come. In Michigan, we said, come. We know these folks will vote if you come. They did not. We lost by 11,000 votes to Donald Trump. So in 2018, we decided to prove the party wrong. We mobilized 400,000 restaurant workers to vote, and we lost by 11,000 votes. By focusing on this issue, we went from a 14, I'm sorry, a 12% voter turnout rate among restaurant workers in 2014 to a 38% voter turnout rate in 2018. So we know these workers can vote, could vote, could have won us the election, could have prevented this man from basically killing this country, but we did not pay attention to the people who decided you're not paying attention to me. I'm not going to pay any attention because this is not a democracy. And so D, democracy, if we ultimately want a democracy, we actually have to pay attention to the people in the democracy. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So these are really big issues, right, that all of you are are talking about. And I'm just wondering if we could nail down, like, one priority that you're working on right now, like one battle that you're taking on. I don't know if it's, like, improving, you know, wages, um, sexual harassment at work, racial segregation. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your one priority and how are you Mm -hmm. tackling that? (laughs) <laughs> or, I mean, if you want to talk about a couple of priorities, that's fine. Pick one. <laughs> okay, I'll start. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, if there's one priority, you got to organize workers. So we have got to figure out how we support workers in our economy to aggregate their power and voice on the job with not just their employer, but with 
their industry throughout the supply chain. And so if there was one thing I would say that we are committed to, and I think actually think we have a route to get to, to this goal, it's to helping unions and worker centers build new models of organizing and just old school organizing. We've supported through Silicon Valley Rising over almost 6,000 workers in the last three and a half years join unions. That's Those are food service workers, uh, shuttle bus drivers in the tech sector, security officers in the tech sector. Through those campaigns, they are winning wage increases. But importantly, they're going from paying $1,200 a month for their health care to paying zero. They're winning paid sick days for the first time, holidays for the first time. One of the unions um, at Facebook won a housing fund to support their their workers through their contract negotiations. I mean, and and through that process of building power and and realizing that it is not an individual problem, it is not their lack of education or their their lack their their um, the fact that they chose the wrong school or they made the wrong choices in their life that they are not doing well. It is a collective problem and a collective solution. So through that work of them figuring out that when we work together, we can win. That is the most important thing I believe we can do in our democracy and that we can do to improve workers' lives. I agree. (laughs) I mean, what it comes down to, um, I, I think that's what it comes down to for us is, is really, you know, what keeps things the way they are is everyone just putting their head down and being like, let me just work as hard as I can. Let me hustle and hustle and figure out how I can get through this. Right. Um, what changes things is when people say, wait a minute, how come, how come, wait, how come we're all struggling with this? Right. What could we do that would actually change the situation? How do I move from an individual mindset to a collective mindset? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's way easier said than done way easier to them because, you know, language barriers, because what society teaches us that like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can trust, you know, we get this all the time. We'll be like, we got to get together. Like, yeah, we got to get together, but not that person. Cause that guy, I don't really trust him. And that person, you know, I think that she's cozy with the boss and that person, they like messed me up on my ship that time. You know, like there's all these reasons that people don't feel like they can work together and come together. And these are folks who are like, they're all getting cheated. They're all getting ripped off. Right. Um, and so, you know, the project for us is about, you know, how do we support people in finding their own power and in believing they actually can make a difference in their life and seeing that they can do that with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a, these uh, amazing moments that we, we've experienced when, um, you know, a worker uh, at a restaurant who's currently going through a struggle shows up to support a different restaurant, right? And their workers struggle, right? And comes out of it going like, oh my gosh, you know, I guess... I guess we're all going through it. I guess, you know, this is something that, you know, is uh, an issue that is not just my boss, because I thought my boss was the worst, but your boss is pretty bad too, right? <laughs> and and really seeing that there's a reason to work together, even when, you know, I didn't know this person, I didn't, I don't, we don't speak the same language, maybe this is a, you know, Spanish-speaking worker and I'm Chinese, but I'm starting to see that there's something here, right? And so, you know, one of the things that we've been working on is really building a regional coalition mm-hmm. of immigrant workers and workers of color um, to, um, to see that we're not going to transform the, the local 
economy with one group of workers alone or one workplace alone, but really by coming together and saying, what are the kinds of campaigns, what are the kinds of policies that we need collectively to change? And, um, you know, I think right alongside that is engaging workers in the fight around housing, because that is for sure, you know, um, we could triple workers' wages today. We could triple workers' wages today. And we're going to still have, you know, folks in the very similar situation they are today around daily survival. And that's a serious issue that as worker rights, worker organizers, we have to grapple with, right? Um, that the fact that the same undemocratic economy that squeezes all the profit to the top and leaves very little for the workers is also, you know, forcing everyone to pay sky high rates for their housing, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to attack it, um, attack these issues together. So... You know, it's hard to say one thing because we're a huge industry and and nationally we're very focused on uh, eliminating the subminimum wage. We actually just had a massive victory in the U.S. House of Representatives in July uh, for the first time since emancipation of slavery. The U.S. House of Representatives voted to eliminate the subminimum wage for tipped workers. Huge uh, victory. Senate is not going to pass it. Donald Trump is not going to sign it. But it creates a ton of momentum and power for us to get this done in many other states. So that's our focus nationally. In in California, as as doom and gloom as parts of what we've said have been, I got to say, because I spend so much of my time in the rest of the country, there's so much hope. Like, believe it or not, like, I feel so much hope about California. We do have a governor who actually is prioritizing workers. Um, we do have a new legislature where very ambitious things can be passed. And so it is time in terms of a focus for California. It is time for all of us to mm-hmm. think of the most <laughs> ambitious, three-time wages, whatever it is, policies that we can think of because we need them, not because we're making them up or they're coming out of our rears. We're, we need these things, you know, uh, and we have to think of these very ambitious things and, and push for them and move them because if we can't do it here in California, we can't do it anywhere. And we know that we can mm-hmm. set the standard here that will be followed elsewhere. And so there's lots of very exciting things we're moving here in California in terms of a priority, I would say, just as an example on the equity issue, the race equity issue. Mm -hmm. I just want to share with you how something like that you've got to work on. It's a priority, and then you've got to think about it from multiple stakeholder angles. So on the worker front, um, we know that Besides employer bias that prevents workers of color from getting to these fine dining service positions, workers self-select against these jobs, workers of color, because they don't see anybody in these restaurants even eating in these restaurants that looks like them, let alone working in the restaurants in the front, maybe in the back. And and for those of you that know kind of slave history, that front and back, I mean, it's it's incredible how much some of this terminology kind of lasts beyond the wage itself, which is a literal legacy of slavery. Some of this terminology in the restaurant industry is is incredible uh, legacy of plantation days, honestly. Um, but but basically that that segregation partly comes from workers and it partly comes from the barriers uh, Shasen mentioned in terms of 
um, housing and in terms of interactions with the criminal justice system. And so for the workers, we got together with the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, bought a building across from the Fruitvale BART station, engaged in an $18 million capital campaign, which is kind of crazy, <laughs> and are opening the largest uh, restaurant training facility for fine dining service in the country, right across from the Fruitvale BART station, but in the same building with that will be a housing clinic mm-hmm. and uh, a, an opportunity for workers to get out of the criminal justice system through restorative justice activities. And so a huge center of really positive activity that I invite you to come visit right across from the Fruitvale BART station called Restore Oakland. That's on the worker side. But of course, you have to address employer bias because you can train five million workers of color to get into fine dining service. But if white employers do not change who they hire and what positions, nothing's ever going to change. And so we created an implicit bias training, testing and toolkit program for employers to train them how to overcome their implicit bias and actually promote workers of color to fine dining service front of house positions. We worked with Daniel Patterson's Alta restaurant group here in San Francisco, helped them go from 90 percent white servers and bartenders to 90 percent people of color servers and bartenders uh, in a in very fine dining restaurants. Mm-hmm. And then we created a toolkit to train other employers how to do that. We've worked with the city of Oakland to create incentives for more employers to move in this direction, like tax and other incentives and hoping to do the same here in San Francisco. And then for all of you, I just want to close by saying you can do something too. We've created this app called the ROC National Diners Guide that tells you which employers' restaurants are moving in the right direction. You can download the app for free and find out which restaurants to support. And maybe even more importantly, it has a banner called Refer a Restaurant. (laughs) So the next time you eat out, wherever you eat out, we encourage you to tell your favorite restaurant owner, I want to see you join the good side, (laughs) the high road, uh, and refer them through the app to talk to us so we can train them in increasing equity in the industry. So everybody can play a role, but I do think collectively we can think super ambitiously about what we can do here in California with a lot of hope in, in really bleak times at the national level. We can do a lot here. So this is a great panel because there's a lot of questions from the audience. <laughs> hey, they are listening. Awesome. Out. Um, so I, uh, there's a lot of people that have questions about what they can do as a consumer or, you know, just as someone who mm-hmm. lives in this area. Uh, this question uh, says, how might we keep restaurant workers employed when mid-range restaurants are closing rapidly in San Francisco? Um, are there new jobs in food delivery or another industry? Mm. So it, it, again, pits some of those like economic interests and, uh, you know, how do we uh, help businesses stay afloat and also pay workers a living wage? Can you can you comment on that? Sure. I mean, uh, the truth is the data is showing actually the industry is booming here. So certain kinds of restaurants might be losing out and others are exploding. And frankly, it's reflecting the hourglass nature of our economy. So fine dining is exploding in exponential numbers. At the bottom, fast food, quick service, limited service is exploding. Uh, and that includes new segments of that industry, like what they might call fast casual, which is like the Paneras and the Cosies of the world, not just the McDonald's. It is that middle tier that is suffering. And that is precisely because the industry has cannibalized itself because they are not paying their workers enough to eat out. And it's those mid-range restaurants that have relied on working people to eat out. And so the Olive Gardens of the world are stagnating because they refuse at the national level to, they they fight vitriolically 
against raising wages, and we've seen the impact on their own restaurants. And so what can we do? We can push those companies to actually pay their workers so that the economy still has enough consumers to support mid-range restaurants. But at the same time, we can actually train a lot of those workers as we're doing to get into fine dining service and bartending, which is exploding. And as I said, is going through the worst labor shortage in the history of the industry. So the thing that I would just push back on the question is we wouldn't be facing a labor shortage (laughs) if there were masses of restaurants shutting down across the city and thousands of workers losing their jobs. It's just not the case because the industry is struggling desperately to find more workers to hire. Uh, And it is because, again, workers cannot afford to live anywhere near where the restaurants are. Mm. So, yes, there are plenty of other jobs to retrain people to to help them upskill into higher wage jobs. But at the same token, I would not take the threats of the industry that raising wages is going to kill the business as reality because it's just not the case. Okay. So, and if I could just maybe add one thing, I think there's also a particular situation that smaller immigrant owned, you know, Mm. mom and pop businesses often face. Um, which, especially in San Francisco, there is uh, the the reality of the real estate crisis and the pressure. And what we found is that a lot of times employers are trying to do the right thing, but they're constrained, one, by all their competitors doing the wrong thing. And how are they supposed to compete if, you know, they have to charge a dollar more for the dish if they're going to pay the right wages? They can't compete, right? Secondly, they're facing intense pressure because real estate is so expensive. And so, you know, something that we have um, put out there is commercial rent control, right? There needs to be support Mm -hmm. for small businesses, for immigrant-owned businesses, for women-owned businesses to be able to, you know, stand their own and not only have these big global corporate chains, you know, run, uh, be able to be successful. That's a really interesting idea that uh, mm-hmm. commercial rent control. Mm-hmm. Never heard of that. Yeah. Um, and so what are some, uh, this is another question from the audience. Um, and so they want to know more about your efforts. You were, you were talking about it, Saru, for your organization. Um efforts around the education to workforce pipeline, like you were mentioning, Alejandra never had the opportunity Mm -hmm. of an internship in software engineering, Mm -hmm. right? So are there any, any steps that your organizations are taking to, you know, better prepare workers for different jobs? So some of the work that my organization is doing um, for the past decade or so has been um, helping workers, you know, on one hand, we're doing our best to raise standards for service sector workers. And on the other hand, we recognize that a lot of people are just, you know, they're not, they don't maybe have the time to wait for a restaurant industry to transform. So we've created a job training program to support mm-hmm. folks to get into unionized uh, service jobs, particularly in hospi- in the hotel industry. So creating these programs that actually create um, a, a pipeline for, uh, you know, uh, limited English speaking immigrant workers to be able to access union jobs that have benefits that are stable, right, that actually um, offer them a career ladder, right, to be able to have a stable, um, uh, stable, uh, you know, situation for their family. So that's one of the programs mm-hmm. we're working on. I think the other, um, you know, it, we've worked in for many years on different job policies that's really trying to connect. Like oftentimes the conversation around workforce and workforce training is not connected to the question of like, 
what kind of jobs and what quality of jobs, right? What are the jobs and where are the quality? Because we can train people for all these jobs and then there's still, you know, uh, bad schedules, you know, like disrespect from the management, like different kinds of violence. So how do we make sure the quality of the job that we're training people for is good and that the jobs actually exist? So we're not just training people into, you know, uh, wishful thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think one of the promising, um, you know, conversations that's happening is around the Green New Deal mm-hmm. and this question that, you know, at the, whether it's the federal or the state, the state being much more hopeful, as Saru pointed out, right? Like, what is the opportunity for us to really think about what is the kind of public investment that's needed to reboot our broken economy? What's the kind of public investment that's needed for the crisis that our communities face around climate? Um, and how can we actually make sure those jobs are accessible to folks who don't speak English, sure. for folks who don't have a college degree, for folks who haven't already been through a trades uh, training apprenticeship program, but that we can create those pathways so more people can access stable uh, jobs in the way that you know, mm-hmm. back in the 50s, there was a whole different set of blue collar, stable jobs that no longer exist in this country. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we run a, a pre-apprenticeship program for to help homeless folks, women, um, immigrants get into the building and construction trades. And I guess one of the things that's that we want to replicate, but one of the things that's the magic of apprenticeship, right? Especially when you think about the tech sector where we work, we've seen a lot of, especially in the diversity and inclusion environment, when tech when tech companies started to release their diversity statistics about their workers, it was worse than we all thought, right? I mean, it was like one percent. 2% workers of color, um, not counting their service workers, mind you, or their subcontracted workers. But the magic of apprenticeship is that, and I'm going to connect it back to that, is that it's a, an employer and and labor partnership, meaning you don't just train people to train people. There's a job at the end of it. That's the magic. And what I would actually say is, is uh, we need to examine is how well the tech industry in particular, they are throwing millions of dollars at solving their diversity problem. But until they reserve some of those jobs for the folks that they're training to scale, right? I'm not sure we're going to see the needle move. And what training people alone when there's no job at the end is just not sufficient. And so I think that's one of the leading edge things that we are starting to, starting to work through with our responsible contracting um, campaign in Silicon Valley Rising is getting companies to recognize that fact um, and not only ask their subcontractors about occupational segregation um, and about wages and about, you know, what are they procuring in these services, but also starting to think about apprenticeship opportunities um, into the their uh, core jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to add two things to it. I so agree with everything that was said. Um, but I want to add two things because I think we all run training programs in the context of organizing, which is very different than <laughs> traditional workforce development training programs, which in our sector we have seen really unfortunately make problems much worse in two ways. Um, one, we have seen most job training in the restaurant industry focus on getting people of color, immigrants, formerly incarcerated individuals into back of house culinary positions. 90% of job training in our industry is focused on culinary and back of house and entry level skills, which is great and important. But if there isn't then the opportunity for those workers of color to continue to get trained to move up into fine dining service, bartending, front of house positions, the workforce development sector, the job training world is essentially perpetuating and increasing the occupational segregation by race that we see in the industry already. If, on the other hand, we see people of color, immigrants, formerly incarcerated individuals as 
limitless, having limitless potential, you could actually train them not just in a culinary skill, but to be a sommelier mm-hmm. or to be a manager or an owner or a master of wine. I always love to tell the story of our member who got so excited from our wine training programs. He ended up going through seven levels of wine training. He became a master of wine. There are only 75 masters of wine in the entire world. Two are people of color. One is our guy. <laughs> and to me, it just, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You sh- you, there should be no limit to your potential. And so we are, we're not talking about culinary training alone. We are talking about sommelier, management, gourmet barista, brewery, you know, any range of professional skills. And that's the mm-hmm. key word because the second big problem that education and workforce development, a lot of uh, them perpetuate is the idea that you know, we could provide some training, but ultimately we just need to get people into the college track so they can move on to something better, that they need to move on to something better because these are not professional skills. These are not professions. We need to get them out of these temporary transitional jobs and on to something better. And that is a real problem that any of us in this room would say to a restaurant worker, there's something better for you. There's definitely something better in the restaurant industry. But the idea that an entirely separate profession is better than this profession so uh, diminishes the professionalism of the restaurant industry. And in other parts of the world, like Europe, hospitality is a profession. You go to school for many years in Europe to be a hospitality professional. And the only reason we don't see the restaurant industry or the hospitality industry as professions, as a profession, is because there isn't the kind of credentialing that we are trying to create. And so the credentialing, the the schools, the training, the programs we're creating are not just about getting people into higher wage jobs. They're not even just about organizing. They're actually about entirely reworking the image of these jobs as the professions that they truly are. Um, So this question also from the audience um, caught my eye because this is what I was working on today. Um, The the Trump administration um, announced uh, a new rule, the public charge rule that it's uh, going to take uh, going to go into effect in two months. Um, but basically, it allows government officials to deny green cards and uh, visas to uh, immigrants who have used um, Medi-Cal, uh, food stamps and other public benefit programs. And so, Sarah, you were talking about how we as taxpayers are subsidizing the restaurant industry and not paying enough to its workers. So the person who uh, the, 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 the person asking this question uh, wants to know if you have any thoughts about strategy mm. with these new federal regulations in place that might, you know, push people who are already struggling, um, you know, farther down. So I got to say, when Trump was elected, I like Maybe everybody else in this room was, um, you know, near, near collapse. Like I, I didn't want to live here. <laughs> um, I, you know, my children were crying for days. Uh, they're black and Indian and they thought they were going to be killed. Literally my, my four and six year old thought they were going to be killed. Um, you know, so it was pretty devastating. And I did not think, I did not think there was a way to win 
in that kind of environment against these kinds of rules. But in 2017, well, a couple of things happened. First, um, Trump uh, nominated a man named Andy Puzder to be his first Secretary of Labor nominee. Mm -hmm. um, Andy Puzder, we knew well because he was the uh, head of a company called uh, CKE Restaurants, which is Carl's Jr., um, the man had uh, been in charge of a massive ad campaign, having uh, very much naked women holding burgers in front of their breasts and vaginas. I don't know if you ever saw these ads. Um, but what we did is we um, surveyed and organized about a thousand Carl's Jr. workers across the country on their experiences, found that girls of 14, 15, 16 reported men coming into the restaurants saying, uh, you don't look like the girls in the ads, but I'll take you anyway. And then following them out into the, the parking lots and assaulting them. And we published this report and worked with Senator Warren to hold a shadow hearing when this man was being nominated. And we got that man out. And it was the first moment of victory where we saw there there is an opportunity to win something. So that was the first moment. The second moment was in 2017, December, when unbeknownst to most people, Trump announced a new rule, just like the one that he announced recently, um, saying that he was going to make tips the property of owners rather than workers. Yep. And we, again, I thought, no way, no way to win this. Uh, after Puzder went away, we got Acosta's Department of Labor head. You, there's no way to win this stuff when the people controlling the Department of Labor and these rules are advocating for these rules, right? They're, it's like the fox guarding the hen house. And so I really thought there wasn't a way. But um, sometimes people go too far. And in that case, we mobilized 400,000 workers and people across this country, including lots of folks here in California, to submit public comments, uh, 10,000 calls into the Department of Labor, you know, banners dropped on the U.S. Department of Labor building, massive marches. And we ended up working in a very surreal moment out of another alien planet uh, <laughs> with Mitch McConnell to pass a law <laughs> in Congress that said that tips are the property of workers right. now and forever. Uh, and because they w tried to go so far, we actually got institutionalized into federal law, something that had not been institutionalized into federal law. So I say these things to say there have been many bleak moments and there continue to be. I mean, I find myself still crying on a every other day basis reading the news, but... There are real moments of hope. The House bill passing in July, I don't think would have happened had Trump not been elected because we were able to get an amazing new House of Representatives uh, that really is doing progressive things. So there is hope. <laughs> um, there's real hope. And to me, one of the biggest pieces of hope is that millions of workers who previously felt completely dejected uh, in multiple Democratic administrations under this administration are motivated um, to act in a way that I haven't seen in states like even in California, but also in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And so I feel hopeful, even with a and a crazy thing like this, there is hope that we can overturn it through organizing, just like Shah said, is ultimately the power of organizing is undeniable. And yeah, that, that, let's just, <laughs> let's just give it up for that. Um, I, I just want to add a little thing on specific on public charge because it is, um, you know, I hope it is, uh, part of what tips 
over the edge, like mm-hmm. you've gone too far now because maybe I didn't care. Maybe I, as some person somewhere, didn't didn't really mind that you put kids in detention camps. I didn't mind that you removed temporary set protective staff. I didn't mind that you were, um, you know, detaining more and more and, and having uh, immigration raids. Um, but now you're attacking legal immigration. Now you are making it super clear that you That's only good. believe the wealthiest should be allowed. The wealthiest and most highly educated people can be in this country. Otherwise, you're not qualified. That that might strike enough of a you know, wrong bone in most decent human beings, right, in this country that, you know, kind of like pulls the whole picture together. Like this is a wholesale attack on everybody who doesn't look like him, who doesn't make as much money as him, who doesn't have the same buddies as him, right? And that we have to see that whether we are immigrant or not, whether we are refugee or not, whether we are educated or not, that, you know, this is about really the core values of of our country. And so it is very, very distressing. It's going to require, we've been doing a lot of education on the ground. We hear stories of people being afraid to seek um, the assistance they need because even when it's not even covered by, because they put out so many crazy versions along the way that now everyone's just afraid Mm -hmm. of everything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what that means is less safety and security and well-being for all of us, whether we use benefits or not. When our neighbors and friends and co-workers are afraid to access health care, are afraid to report a crime, are afraid, you know, to get the help that they need, everyone else is worse off, right? We're all worse off. So it, it's going to require a lot more, c- continue to c- require um, education and organizing in our immigrant communities and then activation of all of us to, you know, turn things around next year. Okay, so we've got only a couple minutes left, which is crazy because there's still a lot of questions <laughs> I have and people in the audience have. But um, this one goes back to, you know, like what can we do, you know, as just bystanders or people who want to make things um, uh, improve for uh, for low-wage workers. Um, so one question is, how might an individual change the federal why is the federal minimum wage so low still after so many years? And, and, and if you can answer this in one minute. And, um, and, and, but just really quickly. And then how can people, you know, help change it so that we actually have a living wage? Cause the whole point of getting a wage is so you can live, you know? We just need to have that conversation on replay. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? <laughs> maybe as a suggestion, would you want to read a couple of the questions and then maybe we could take a last round of sure. answering them? Does that make sense? Well, uh, they're sort of like in different, you know, areas. But um, so this this question is, how do we ensure systems have equity baked in versus the uh, versus people, you know, becoming oppressors? kind of thing. Um, so yeah, how do we ensure systems have equity baked in? Uh, what will it take to bring housing costs more into line for workers? <laughs> what are your thoughts on basic minimum income? No. Um, and what's an example of a company that treats workers the way you'd like to see, you know, companies treat workers? So there's plenty, okay. plenty. That's a lot of popcorn, and we have like, yeah. zero minutes. I think we really have like um, one minute. 
I'll, I'll popcorn a few yeah. things. Okay. So um, we li- we lift up two in our tech campaign. Um, two uh, tech companies is doing the right thing by their subcontracted workers. Facebook and Cisco have all union subcontractors, janitors, food service workers, shuttle bus drivers, and they've been they've been excellent partners, not just on making sure that they've got high standards on the on the work site, but also um, are working with us on responsible contracting. Doesn't mean they don't have other issues. Um, uh, at play in the democracy realm, but uh, it's been very good um, working with them on that. Um, on housing, I would just say housing, we, we really have to examine property rights and capitalism, y'all. And I think I'm going to just end it there because it's a very complicated thing. But when you can own, and so therefore some cannot, it actually creates a system that has no equity baked in. Um, and we have to really think about that um, as it relates to to our economy. I'm going to let Sarah close. So I'll just jump in to say that um, what folks can do, I mean, continue to learn about these issues, you know, follow it in the news, ask, write letters to the editor, you know, just like talk to the people who are workers in your life that yes. are serving you in some way. Ask them how, ask them if they get paid sick days, ask them if they have health insurance, you know, um, get to know. And that because it's breaking the isolation of like everyone's just doing their own thing. Like let's break some of those mm-hmm. um, barriers down and understand what's happening and ask your favorite businesses what their practices are, right? And how you can That's support right. them in raising standards. And really the equity baked in question, I think it's mm-hmm. about who is at the conversation from the get-go? Who gets to define what the goals are of what we're trying to do here? And if folks who are at the margins of our economy are not at the center of the conversation, you don't have equity baked in. Super quick on the companies that uh, treat people well. Again, go to our app. Mm-hmm. We've got about 800 restaurant companies around the country that are doing the right thing. Um, I will make a note that uh, in and out does get a high rating, but they were just outed as being major Trump supporters um, and so uh, they do pay their workers well, um, but they are not don't have fabulous politics. Uh, but I would say, you know, at individuals, you can use the app to not only support the restaurants that are doing the right thing, but in the app, there's a banner, as I mentioned, to refer a restaurant. And I couldn't agree more that you all have the opportunity to yeah. use the app to get your favorite restaurant to join. We'll provide them with training and support and toolkits and even capital to do the right thing. Um, and then also you can refer workers through the app. You know, if you meet a worker uh, at a restaurant, have a good conversation, refer them to talk to us. Um, on housing, you know, people, other people have much more to say than me. I just want to say with the, the, the concept that we've created at Restore Oakland is that um, housing, you know, job training, economic justice and criminal justice really need to work much more hand mm-hmm. in hand. And that's what we're trying to do in this space is is create is just cause Causa Justa, which is an amazing housing rights organization, is providing a housing clinic in the building. Ella Baker Center is running the restorative justice work. We're doing the job training work. And it's an experiment, but we believe it's a model for how these things need to work together and also a model for what we all should be investing in, both in terms of elected officials and employers, because ultimately workers need all of those things in order to be able to move up and be able to, you know, have great lives and for us to have great dining experiences. And the last thing I'll come back to on on why is the minimum wage so low? I mean, fundamentally, I think what we're all talking about is power. 
And in our case, it's the National Restaurant Association. I told you it's been around 150 years since emancipation. Um, look, we already know there are elected officials who are bought and sold by the, the, the National Restaurant Association. What, what is sad and disappointing and unfortunate is when people who proclaim to be of a party that supports workers also roll over. So I'm talking specifically about the Democratic Party <laughs> because we have seen in state after state um, elected officials who proclaim to be on the side of workers, uh, you know, pass, raise the minimum wage and leave out tipped workers or raise the minimum wage only so far or basically make compromises that hurt the people that we represent. And fundamentally, the only way to change that is is through organizing and then actually mobilizing people to hold those elected officials accountable. And it's also for all of us to realize that changing the president or changing Congress is not enough. If whoever we change those people to don't deliver for workers, we're going to end up in exactly the same situation or worse because when you start to raise workers hopes and say it's going to be different with a different president or a different senator or a different house and you still don't deliver you're going to actually go backwards because people are going to be so uh dejected and so fundamentally it comes down as a as a nation for us you know this fundamental question who gets to control our lives our dining experiences our children's lives because uh this is the first restaurants are the first job for for most young americans who gets to determine how people are treated? Um, is it a trade lobbies like the National Restaurant Association or powerful tech companies? Do they get to decide that or do we, the people, are we truly, are we truly the democracy that we claim to be? That's the fundamental question. With that, okay. thank you go. so much to our panelists. <laughs> Can I add one thing? Just one very quick sentence. Okay. Just because I mentioned it, I did want to note that Yank Sing, um, which is the dim sum restaurant around the corner on Spear Street, uh, is the restaurant I was referring to earlier. And we do now recommend that you go there yes. because workers are health care. So please enjoy your dim sum. So I want to thank our panelists, um, Saru Jayaraman. President and co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Center United and director of the Food Label Research Center at UC Berkeley. Derica Mearns, executive director of Working Partnerships USA. And Shasan Liu, executive director of the Chinese Progressive Association. This program has been generously supported by the James Irvine Foundation. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. I'm Farida Jabala Romero, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs>